Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Ryan here, Janelle, we are back. 2023 is upon us, and we've got a good speaker here uh, that we were blessed with in Waco, Texas, Carrie Fisher, and now she's joining us uh, here on the Brew Theology Podcast. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Uh, real quick, Carrie is a creative nonfiction writer and a poet who explores Black and biracial identity in the American South. Her work has been recognized by the Writers League of Texas, the Collegeville Institute, and the Mayborn Literary Nonfiction Conference. Her poetry has been featured in Apricity Magazine and the Mockingheart Review. Carrie is also a licensed clinical social worker, social work educator, and regularly invited speaker, DEI consultant on topics including cultural humility, intersectionality, supremacy culture, and anti-oppressive practices. It's a lot of stuff there. We're going to put a link to her work, uh, Instagram, and, and her uh, her blogging as well on the show notes. And to kind of sum up our conversation today, and we'll dive into this, uh, we are inundated with messages that beg us to embrace the world in black and white, but the myths of common sense in one right way are tools of supremacy seeking to limit imagination and thus liberation, not only for those of us who are marginalized, but for those who bear the burden of being the witness, accomplice, or perpetrator of violence in the world. Many of us are on the path to embody more non-binary, diunital, both and, and ways of being human. But how do we practically embrace truth in the various dimensions, tensions, and contradictions where it lives without losing our identities, without altogether losing our way? Okay. So first off, we would love for the listeners to hear your background story. That's always important to us, religious, spiritual pedigree, and then how you continued becoming you over the years. That's always a fascinating story. And I've heard it. Janelle hasn't heard it. And those out there. Haven't. So this, this, is, this is always a good time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such an exciting concept and community that you've created here. So I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about myself and our various ways of thinking about and trying to seek truth. Um, I grew up in a lot of tensions. I was um, uh, black and white. So I was a biracial child in predominantly white spaces in Texas. And and I mean, every space I was in church, school, neighborhood, you know, everything was predominantly white. And um, when I got the chance to speak to some local brew theology folks here, I said, I, I felt another huge tension that now seems so funny, but one side of my family was Baptist and the other side was Church of Christ. So that was wildly different in my view and um, had a lot of uh, interesting dilemmas around this side of the family is saying this about baptism and this side of this family is saying this. Some of us think we can lose our salvation. Some of us think we can't. So um grew up in uh predominantly those small baptist uh church experiences and then went to a small private baptist institution for my undergraduate degree and like so many people probably started I mean, I will say because of my biracial identity and probably because of that denominational difference in my family, I was always situated with a pretty healthy suspicion that we, um, that any one group was getting it right. I remember as a child, like walking through my yard on blustery days and thinking, I 
think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to find out that things that we thought we were doing right were not right. I just always had this suspicion, not quite it or not all of it. So anyway, I think more formally in college, uh, I got to, I uh, studied, I think it was called Christian studies was one of my minor areas. And so got to hear a lot about how this Bible got put together and um, what was missing and what perspectives were left out and had one of those big beginning changes. And then I went to grad school at the University of Texas in Austin in social work. So I really forced myself to continue to do the tension of going from small private Baptist, predominantly white institution to huge public university in the liberal, uh, the blue dot of Texas. And um, it was real whiplash. But there I found even more. I think that's probably where I finally was around a different variety of people. I had a lot of queer friends. I had a lot of friends who were all sorts of ethnicities and religions. And I really had never had that before. And so even though theoretically I was suspicious that there was only one right way, I didn't have much to like sort of sharpen myself with in that thinking until probably graduate school. And then I started my life as a professional social worker and continued my lifelong uh, work of writing. And in those spaces, I have always found that stories never fit the binary that we have been given. You know, we're constantly seeing a protagonist who we think is going to be one way based on the identities they have or don't have. And then it turns out we're all quite manifold. We're all, you know, to quote that famous, I don't know if it's Emerson quote, but we're, we contain multitudes. So that's me. I have a, I have a question. Uh, do you do you love the anti-hero movement in film and TV these days? You know, that's so funny that you would ask me that because actually I feel relieved that we're finally coming to more of a, a middle ground there. It was like, it was interesting to have an anti-hero movement for a while there, but then I found it to be as often happens, right? Like when we're looking for that um, middle space, part of the process is going to a new extreme, right? And so for a while, it was like, I also don't find it very believable that there's someone who is all uh, or who is like mostly self-serving or mostly pathetic as I view them. And so so I like now that we're, we, I think we're actually coming to the more center place of, gosh, a lot of us are 80% one thing and 20% the other thing, <laughs> not 100, 100 or 0, 0. And of right. course, that's for every single dimension of our life. So I really like seeing now people who are neither heroic nor anti-heroic, mm-hmm. but who are both uh, ordinary and extraordinary, of course. Right. Yeah. I- I mean, I feel like HBO has always kind of had a grip on that kind of writing. And they, they're they the ones that swung that pendulum first, probably with The Sopranos. Uh, but yeah, you're right. There's so, so many unbelievable things in some of these characters, too. And I don't know if y'all follow Yellowstone at all with Kevin Costner, but oh, my gosh, like some of these characters are so awfully depraved. But there's moments where they're in their that that weak state where you're like, oh, you have a tender heart toward them suddenly. So the writers do a little bit more of that. Um, and I also heard something else. You so you went to the you know UT Austin later mm-hmm. in life, and I as Bay, as Baylor probably did not tell you to, that you need to saw off the horns of the wicked is what they call it. So <laughs> that, that led to your slippery slope there. Okay, well, I'm sure there's many in my life who do believe that. <laughs> so I don't know if Janelle knows that there were these T-shirts that were made. I don't know if they still make them, 
and it, and it has the longhorns sawed off and it says saw off the horns of the wicked Baylor. wow where she used to wear them back in the day oh my goodness i know yeah uh, okay so let's dive into the truth about the truth and we're already there so you speak about this common sense in that one right way as these myths seeking to limit our imagination and then even to curb liberation. Uh, and I find that incredibly intriguing. Others may frown upon that, those who want to solve the horns of the wicked, so to speak, <laughs> when they enter into this kind of dialogue. So can you begin to just tell us about that world that we do live in and why that is dangerous? Because you start off with, you know, again, these, you're, you're call, you call them myths, and then you say they're damaging. So other some people might just turn their head and maybe shake it and frown, address that world that we live in um, first off. Yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, a lot of people who study all types of development, spiritual de development, moral development, physical development, you see a pattern, right, that initially we often need things to be black and white in order to sort of get our head around them or in order to keep us from the most dangerous things. So it's like, you know, when I have a toddler, I'm not saying like, sometimes fire is good and sometimes it's, you know, bad. I'm just saying, stay away from fire, right? It's just like that you don't really have what it takes to know that like fire can be so beautiful and warm. I just need to keep you from burning yourself, right? And um and also what we see across a lot of developmental theories, though, is that many of us don't really progress um, beyond some of those earlier stages a lot of times because there is such a great comfort in the notion that there is one right way, one salvific way, one way to be healthy. You know, it's really across multiple domains, not just religion and spirituality. But then what happens is like we were just talking about when we start encountering human stories that provide some evidence that that one right way doesn't always work for all bodies, all people, all circumstances, then we have this crisis, right, in our development. We can either take in this new content that we're being given and say like, oh, there must be something broader or more essential about this truth. Or, um, or we say like, I must defend this truth in the face of any uncertainty or anything that feels like it's kind of combating it. And so I think a lot of us, well, everybody has some amount of doing that. And a lot of us stay there for quite a while or for forever, because I mean, I know for me, it feels so comforting. I, I can think of a lot of milestones in my life where the beg that I was offering was like, could you could you just please tell me the right thing? If you tell me the right thing, I'll do the right thing. I'll memorize the right thing. I'll worship the right thing. And it you makes know, me... I don't, I, don't, I don't think you had this in your tradition. No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I'm just now I want to know what your Enneagram number is. But go ahead. <laughs> well, you, you won't at least be surprised with one of my wings, probably. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I I can really, I really empathize with both the way that systems, authorities, and individuals want this one right way, because it, it often seems like, and in some cases is, a way of being safe, right? But as we expand in years, I think hopefully we expand in experiences and expand in definition, you know, and we can hold on to the essence of truth and let go of some of the the ways that we have put it in a box, probably. Um, but I, I think that's what happens is that religions and parents and 
institutions, I mean, I think about it even from a social work perspective, like we have to make policies. And sometimes the policy is like, we don't help someone if A, B, or C is true. And that is inhuman, right? A policy, a rule doesn't look at the human standing in front of you. It says, actually, we decided beforehand what we're going to do because we will be so tempted when a certain human comes in that we'll want to do something different, right? And so that is like, not actually, I don't think the most loving and and loveliest thing, but sometimes for like institutions to work, we need to create rules. But I think if we're looking at for humanity, if we're looking to expand our humanity, we have to get better and better at figuring out where the rules are not big enough. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, I found that when I looked into like rabbinical thinking and when I, I got into that years ago, just trying to understand the gospels through the Jewishness of Jesus, that uh, I did see that this has been a normal part of, of Jewish rabbinical thinking for years, the dissenting voice that they're all welcome. Um, and even the binding and loosening of, of uh, the Torah and sort of the practical teachings of these rabbis, uh, that they were all welcome to the conversation, but they were all trying to figure out, well, what about in this context? Well, how, what if you break this law under these circumstances? Well, is this okay? And that's, it's invited, you know, and there are those who are a little bit more strict than others. And that, but that's normal in different contexts as well. But I think, yeah, in the Western world, we, we have, we, we're stuck in, in that developmental stage of probably where my, my 10 year old is you mm -hmm. know it's like that's it and she gets very black and white with things i'm like well it's normal she's 10 but here we are we're middle-aged people like we're not you know we're not childish anymore but we've we we're we stuck in those ways so yeah. i think we can learn a lot from the old rabbis i'm a huge fan personally uh so okay you but in your, in your quest for truth you you do speak of and, and i know janelle's gonna love this the wesleyan quadrilateral along with Perry scheme and of course the scientific method, a lot of these things that have guided you along your um, your theories from binary to non-binary to diunal way of thinking and seeing the world. So just for the sake of clarity and definitions for those listening, can you just unpack a little bit with the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Cause I know you love it. And then Perry scheme. It, yeah, just see where it goes. <laughs> I love it so much. It was, you know how, I don't know if other people conceptualize of their life in this way, but I, I feel that I have these, um, in, in our church, we sometimes refer to it as our attention collection, the thing that captured our attention. You might call it a milestone or an Ebenezer stone, so, you know, but I have these things that I collect where I think, oh man, I finally went on a different path at this moment. And when I, I taught in Abilene, Texas for a few years. And at that time I was attending a Methodist church. It was the first time in my life I'd ever attended a Methodist church. And, um, and my, my great dear friend and um, pastor there introduced me to the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And it was this way of taking in content that said, you know, as Methodists, we believe in basically multiple ways to discern. And of course, we believe in scripture and we believe in tradition those two things I had gotten a lot of in my Baptist upbringing, right? I mean, in fact, almost exclusively uh, solo scripture, right? Just like that's the thing that made a Baptist a Baptist and Church of Christ felt very similar. And so, and though people didn't say that tradition was important, I could see in the Baptist church that, you know, sometimes we decided all of a sudden that women are allowed to braid their hair, even though it says something different in the Old Testament, but we've, we followed this tradition, right? And so, but the things that felt, felt new to me was that in the Wesleyan quadrilateral, there was room for us to discern and understand more fully bringing in 
um, reason and experience. And I thought like, this is the thing I have been missing. I have been trying to reach for these things as a person of faith and quote, faithful people have said, no, those things don't count. We don't, we can't learn about God from our intellect and we can't learn about God from our experiences. Certainly not because that would be, that would mean that we might all have a different interpretation. That would mean that we might all come up with different answers and how would the church work or how would a faith community work if we were all coming up with different answers. But I thought that was so beautiful that an organized denomination had, had based a lot of their um, engaging scripture in this way. Now I know that I think most people interpret it as like, there's an order to these things, particularly that scripture is the first place we look or them has the most important seat, but these other things kind of build off of it. And I just thought like, particularly as a person with some marginalized identities, the ability to say experience matters. And so for example, a thing that I think a lot of churches have struggled with in the last couple of years is what do we do about this concept of forgiveness in the face of the Me Too movement, in the face of Black Lives Matter? Forgiveness is the central thing in uh, probably all religions. I know certainly in the Christian faith. And yet, do we all need to forgive in the same way, at the same level, with the same means? And I've had pastors talk to me about like, I really do believe that forgiveness is the way but also maybe I'm not allowed to tell a woman that she must forgive someone who's abused her. Or maybe I'm not allowed to tell a black person they should forgive a white person for their racial ignorance or damage. And that's, um, that's so important, I think, because, and there's different people who've talked about this through years. I think James Cohn and uh, I'm going to forget other people's names, but the notion that maybe actually, we're in at least an era where forgiveness is always a beautiful, sacred thing, but maybe we're in a time where certain groups of people need to really connect with their need to repent, and certain groups of people need to really connect with the power of a risen uh, God, and that like, and and the, that I am created in the image of God because some of us, some of our experiences, have led us to believe we are less created in the image of God than others. And some of our experiences have led us to believe we have less to be humble about or repent for than others. And so th this bringing in of experience helps us to actually make scripture work at its fullest, I think, for us in a variety of scriptures, because when we try to make it work the same way for people in different bodies with different identities, different cultures and heritages, I think we know that has done so, so, so much damage in, in the world. And so that's why I love the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And it's just recently that I've been thinking about how growing up with a scientific method, you know, particularly politically right now, I see this like the scientific method was about testing your hypothesis. And it was great news if your hypothesis was wrong, because that meant you were a good scientist. You were a good learner. If you had an idea, but in the face of certain evidence, you found out that it wasn't what you thought, then you changed your thinking. You didn't change the experiment to make it work, right? But I think so many of us in religious and political spheres have gotten into this very grimy place where instead of in the face of new information, opening ourselves to what might be true, 
we close ourselves and find a way to find a new counter truth, right? A new apologetic or something. So, so yeah. And then Perry's scheme, it just is, I think is really great, especially with people who are kind of at a deconstruction stage of their life, because he, he talks about that learners, much like you'll hear Father Rohr talk about or other um, developmental spiritual developmental thinkers, some learners come in and they're like in that construction phase and they feel like there's one right way and that we don't want that as as educators. But on the other hand, then sometimes people, they they have so much of a relativistic stance that nothing becomes important. Nothing has matter. Nothing has conviction to it. And so I like that he talks about that, like really a, a good stage and a good uh, developmental progress is when someone can have commitment within relativism. So I can both understand that there are multiple truths in the world, but that doesn't mean that everything is meaningless. It means that I'm going to set myself or I have been set in a, in a certain set of structures and beliefs, and I'm going to live them out as expansively and as dutifully as possible. But also my neighbor, my cousin, they might have a, either a totally different set or a totally, totally different set of experiences, which means while I'm going to the march, somebody else is staying at home and doing self-care. And we might both be doing what our conviction and what our responsibility really is. Yeah, that, yeah. that that's the part I think it's really hard for people. I mean, so Janelle, from your, your experience, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. You were recently ordained in a multi-faith group. Congratulations. And you Thank had, you. Uh, you had rabbis and you had, I mean, you had the gamut there supporting you, affirming you, and giving you the stall. It was a beautiful ceremony. But I feel like in a lot of ways, like these are people that probably had to navigate through through all that in order to get to that space. of so, like they have their own convictions, their own beliefs. So then for you personally, I mean, this is like the culm- in some ways it's the culmination of of your own journey. I, I, I just would like for you to talk into this because I think this this applies to just your your recent experience. If you don't mind. Yeah. Um, I think what one of the things that was challenging coming up to that moment was that I used to live in that very black and white world. And I came from a tradition that as I was going through this, I was uncovering narratives that had already been placed in me about how, you know, going through this process somewhere else was just, you know, pretending or wasn't as authentic or wasn't wasn't real you know, it wasn't going to be a real ordination. And so really having to combat that and be like, no, like I, I've got these leaders around me that have gathered and they're affirming that it's very real, (laughs) that it's, that in this in-between space that we live in, where we each bring our own tradition and conviction to the table, we can also link arms and Um, use our faith as a force for good in the world. And I think that that's been really one of the images that has um, grown in me and and really come to life is that I think I I now find the strength of faith is when we cooperate and we work from all of our different positions to help make the world better while still being able to hold some probably very contradictory ideas about different things. And that takes effort and work and it's hard, but it's also the the beauty that was in that room. Just, I don't 
think I've really ever experienced anything like it. And so I'm really thankful uh, for that experience. And I think that it also, you know, I, I come from a old Wesleyan breakoff tradition, the Church of the Nazarene. And so I know the quadrilateral and I've had it, you know, used against me and it, it shaped me in some ways. And I think that when we add this interfaith experience to this whole conversation, it can really do exactly what you said, widen and expand how we view the world and having to do that inner work of there isn't just one way. If I'm going to legitimately come and sit at this table, then there has to be a piece of my belief that says there are other ways to move through the world that are not just my own. And if you would ask Janelle of even 10 years ago, if I would be saying something like that, she would have laughed at you and been like, you heretic. <laughs> I love that. You know, I always teach my students that part of um, Fowler's spiritual identity development yeah. says that like when people move into the um, fourth phase where they're starting to hold some things less loosely um the people in the stage previous to it think those people are backsliders right and i, yeah. I think all the time about how my 20 year old self would would experience me as someone who had really backslid instead of someone who had really expanded yeah. grown and sometimes it takes a lot of work in ourselves to trust our current w- wisdom instead of our 20 year old sophomoric yeah way of seeing something right um i find myself sometimes wanting to please my childhood self or my adolescent self but i have to honor the wisdom of my current self mm-hmm. um, and what you said struck me it made me think about vocation and there are there are some ways that we should be cautious when we talk about vocation particularly knowing that so many of us don't get to live into vocation, certainly not professionally, um, because of, you know, different amounts of privilege. But I have always thought that quote was really beautiful about like, where our great passion or joy meets the world's great need. And it's interesting how, for most of us, I think with vocation, we can understand that for some reason, that person likes being a nurse, I can't wrap my brain around liking being a nurse. But that's how they're kind of, I say this tongue in cheek, but that's how they're saving the world, right? And yeah. I have been obsessed with language from the, the, I think it must have been in utero. I mean, I've never not been just perseveratory on language and its power and its beauty. And so here I am doing jobs that are that are oral and written in nature. And we can usually make the leap of like, I'm trying to save the world with the gifts and experiences that I have. And so is a nurse. And so potentially is somebody in every other field, construction, you know, uh, post office, all the things with um, religion and spirituality. It's often like, no, we all definitely have to be teachers and teachers Mm -hmm. are the only way um, that the world will get better. And it's like, that's so interesting. That doesn't happen in any other realm. Even in a family, we've got family roles where someone is the person making sure that things look pretty and someone is making sure that the bills get paid. And, you know, it's just kind of fascinating how that's one area where we've really been socialized, uh, often for, for power seeking reasons that like, this is the place where there cannot be diversity. 
Well, and it's interesting you say that because the question I've probably answered the most in this is, well, okay, so what are you going to go do? Well, well, I'm just, I'm going to keep doing what I do. Uh, I'm doing brew theology as an interfaith leader. And I'm, I work, I do climate justice work here in Denver as well with an interfaith organization. So I'm going to keep doing those things and I'll keep writing. And I think everyone, yeah, the default is, oh, so you're going to go take a pastorate. Well, Mm -hmm. No, I don't I don't think that's my path at this point in time. And so I think, yeah, that and widening that understanding, I think, is something I hear a lot about in different denominations that people have to fight to get kind of a different label than senior pastor or associate pastor or missionary or sometimes you have that label of like compassionate ministries. But yeah, but anything outside of that people just don't like they can't get their heads around and so i think that stretching of what is re- what does religious vocation mean is definitely something we're challenged with thanks so much for listening to the brew theology podcast if you'd like to know more about brew theology you can find us at brewtheology.org at brew theology on instagram and facebook and at brew underscore theology on twitter if you liked this episode please like and share And join us again in our next episode for the remainder of our talk with Carrie Fisher. Thanks so much. Cheers.